Welcome everyone to IBD Drive Time. I'm Raymond Cross from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. My co-host today, as always, is Millie Long from the University of North Carolina. And we're delighted to have our friend and colleague, Jess Allegretti from Brigham and Women's Hospital to talk about C. diff and IBD. Welcome, Jess. Thank you so much for having me. So let's jump right in. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about C. diff and IBD? What's the prevalence, risk factors, complications? Absolutely. So if we think more broadly, C. diff is the most common cause of healthcare-associated infection in the U.S. There are about a half a million new cases in the U.S. annually. And unfortunately, the scope of the problem in IBD is even more significant. These patients have about a three to eight-fold higher prevalence than non-IBD patients. So generally speaking, they have about a 10% lifetime risk of getting this disease. And once they have a C. diff infection, they're almost five-fold at a higher risk of developing recurrent C. diff. And we know it's our patients with ulcerative colitis that have the highest risk, though Crohn's patients are not uh, without risk, specifically our Crohn's colitis patients. We start certainly do see these patients at increased risk as well, but it's those UC patients you've got to really be on the lookout for. With regard regards to risk factors, these patients don't have the traditional risk factors that we see in our non-IBD patients. These patients tend to be younger. They tend to be in the community, not necessarily hospital dwellers, and they don't necessarily need that inciting antibiotic course that we see in our non-IBD patients. Really, because of that mucosal breakdown that you have in the colon, these patients are at increased risk. So you mentioned that um, patients with ulcerative colitis are more likely to develop C. diff, but do you need to have colonic involvement um, in patients with IBD to get C. diff? And what about patients that have J pouches? So do we see C. diff in pouches? Yeah, thanks for this question. So certainly uh, you do not need to have a colon to get a C. diff infection. Certainly our patients with ulcerative colitis with regards to our IBD cohort, do have the highest risk. However, we know that certainly patients with ileostomies, patients with J pouches can get C. diff as well. You can get C. diff ileitis. And so similarly to my patients with colons who are presenting with newer worsening disease, same goes for my pouch patients. If they're presenting with newer worsening disease, I'm always checking for C. diff in those patients as well. And, you know, when I was a trainee, we did, we did toxin testing for C. diff and you did serial testing up to three times because we thought the toxin wasn't that accurate. Then we switched to PCR and realized that it's overly sensitive and we're picking up some carriers and our IBD patients seem to be more likely to be carriers. Now it seems like we're doing three different tests. Do you want to explain to the listeners the diagnostic testing for C. diff? Maybe teach me too. Yeah, absolutely. It's important to note that not all C. diff tests are created equal. So you do need to understand what you're ordering and what's available to you where you're practicing. So if you're not sure, I always encourage you to call down to your micro lab and find out what exactly are they doing down there and what uh, what are the offerings. There are really three main commercially available tests that you will encounter in practice. The first is the GDH test. This is an ELISA-based test that is looking for the enzyme glutamate dehydrogenase, or GDH, and this is really a first-pass screen. So this is a test that is looking for this enzyme that is produced by all C. diff isolates, so those that produce toxin and those that don't, because not all C. diff makes toxin. The next test that Ray just alluded to, the toxin test, is also an ELISA-based test that is actually looking for the presence of toxin, both toxin A and B. 
Now, the older versions of this test, the concern was that it was not sensitive. You know, you can see some older reports of sensitivities in the 30% range. Um, and so that's why back in the day, you used to send those serial testing to try to improve the testing characteristics. The newer versions of this assay are better, although they are not perfect. And because of this initial concern, many institutions turn to a PCR only or PCR confirmatory method. The concern here is that when you're sending a PCR test, it probably will come back and say toxin DNA testing. So I think many people are confused that there's you're actually getting information about toxin. You are not. PCR testing tells you about genetic material that codes for toxin. So you are getting information about the presence of organisms that are potentially toxigenic. And so if you only have a PCR test in front of you, you cannot distinguish colonization from actual infection. And so what do we do now? So there is guidance on this, both in European and US societies recommend a two-step testing approach. So you wanna start with your highly sensitive tests. So that could be either your GDH or your PCR test, because both of those tests tell you about the presence of organisms, yes or no. And then if that's positive, you wanna reflex to your toxin-based test, if that's positive and the patient is symptomatic, you have a C. diff infection. If that is negative, the patient is likely colonized and you want to look for other sources of their diarrhea. Although I don't want to get in trouble with my infectious disease colleagues. It seems to me sometimes they don't care what the toxin test shows and they recommend treatment anyway. So I just wanted to follow up on that because the the sick inpatient with ulcerative colitis is, is really problematic. And, and we know that those patients can have C. diff, obviously, and there's some discussion about whether that's a real infection that's going to reverse the flare or whether it's just a bystander that's suggesting it's a very sick colon. So if you just had PCR uh, testing at your institution and you didn't have a reflux to toxin, my approach has been to give them four days of vancomycin, try to cut their steroid dose by 50% if I can, and really wait on escalating therapy until I assess response. And if I don't see any improvement after four days, I just assume that I'm just dealing with a flare and then I escalate. Is that a reasonable approach? Do you do it any different? Yeah, I think that's completely reasonable. Again, you, you know, you have to work with what you've got. If you've only got PCR testing in front of you and you've got a very sick patient, you give them the benefit of the doubt. You can treat them with vancomycin. There's almost zero downside to using oral vancomycin in these patients. I usually give them 48 to 72 hours to see if anything budges. You know, if there, if there really is a significant component of C. diff that's driving these symptoms, you should notice something, a slight improvement in diarrhea, uh, improvement in some of their overall symptoms, because again, there is no clinically significant resistance to vancomycin to from C. diff, and so it should work. So if you are seeing absolutely no response, that patient is probably colonized, and that's a, again, a red herring, just a sign of a sick colon. And so I think what often happens is people get hung up on this and then get afraid to escalate therapy for their IBD. And this is a patient who's likely at risk of losing their colon. So you've got the vancomycin on board. You don't need to take it off if that is giving sort of an extra layer of comfort. But I will start these patients on steroids. I will also, I've loaded patients on infliximab during these periods as well. Um, you know, you're you are trying to save that patient's colon, essentially, either way, you're treating the C. diff or the IBD. So I think that if they do have a dramatic improvement after the vancomycin, then you're more convinced and maybe you treat them a little bit further and still minimize some of that immunosuppression. But I'm not afraid of steroids in the setting of C. diff. I think you have to use them responsibly, but when appropriate, it's appropriate to do so. 
And that's a perfect segue into treatment. Do you treat your IBD patients with C. diff any, any differently than a non-IBD patient with C. diff? Do you go with a longer course of vancomycin or Dipsit or whatever you're using? I'm sorry, Fidoxamycin. We do have some guidance on this in the um, recent updated ACG C. diff guideline as well. What the guidance uh, recommends is that you don't use that standard 10-day course of vancomycin, but if you're going to use standard uh, dosing, you should at least do a minimum of 14 days. This comes out of some data out of the University of Chicago. Uh, it's a small study, but these patients did better with slightly longer courses. They used a four-week course. Um, I do try to use fidaxomycin in my patients with with IBD, if I can get it, I've had an easier time getting it as of late, but if not affordable or they're unable to get fidaxomycin, I certainly will use anywhere between a 14 day uh, to four week course, even for a primary infection, depending on how significantly active the patient's underlying IBD is. Uh, great. I'm going to hand it over to Millie. No, what a great discussion. And Jess, every time you you kind of advise me about the um, testing for C. diff, it, it kind of like makes me think a little bit more and it makes me realize that many of us are probably not recognizing colonization um, in some arenas, especially when we get all these outside C. diff tests that we're not sure what the methodology is. So I really appreciate that reminder. Um, and I do want to take one brief pause and just remind all of our listeners that this um, podcast is brought to you by the Advances in IBD um, meeting, both our regional series and our national meeting, as well as by the Gastroenterology Learning Network. And so with that, Jess, I want to jump into a few more questions about uh, C. diff and IBD. This is something we're seeing so commonly. And one of the things you have educated me a lot about is the role that um, fecal transplant may play in the treatment of um, C. diff and IBD. You know, obviously, a lot of the original data was in non-immunosuppressed populations. Can you talk to us a little bit about your work in FMT and IBD, and particularly some data surrounding safety and uh, effectiveness? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm always happy to talk about this, as you guys know. Um, and so what's interesting about this population is initially when this was being looked at, much of the data was retrospective, and there was a lot of questions around the safety of this therapy in a population with both IBD and C. diff. We were seeing a lot of reports of what was described as IBD flare rates or IBD worsening. And so there was this initial concern that perhaps in this subpopulation, this we might be making these patients worse. And so there was this initial move, you know, towards looking at FMT to actually treat IBD and this population of IBD patients with C. diff was really getting left behind. And so we decided to undertake the first prospective study looking at this particular population. This was the ICON study. We enrolled 50 patients at four sites around the US. Um, all patients had to have both a confirmed diagnosis of IBD and at least two episodes of C. diff, so a first recurrence or further population. We performed a single colonoscopically administered FMT, and we followed patients for 12 weeks post, looking at not only C. diff outcomes, but also IBD outcomes to really try to understand this question around both efficacy of this therapy, but also IBD worsening. And we had set definitions based on clinical scores to define that. Um, overall, we saw that only 8% of patients in this cohort um, actually failed the FMT, so had a true recurrence after, um, which was actually much lower than had been um, previously reported in the retrospective literature. And the IBD outcomes were actually 
much more reassuring. We saw that the vast majority of patients, so about 75% in the Crohn's cohort, 62 in the UC cohort, had improvement in their IBD clinical scores, and the rest essentially had no change. Only one patient in the UC cohort met the definition of de novo flare, and they basically had a partial Mayo score change of two to five over the course of the treatment period. So I wouldn't say a significant flare, uh, but they were the only patient that met that definition. We saw no major adverse events. This therapy was extremely well tolerated. And in fact, a large percentage of the patients who started this, the study on steroids were able to successfully taper off. So I'm hopeful that this study really debunked um, some of that retrospective data that this is safe in this population and definitely should be offered. Um, and I'll just say we are doing sort of the second version of this study now, which is called ICON-2, in which we're giving the same group of patients open label FMT, and we're randomizing patients to either receive bezlotoximab, which is the monoclonal antibody against toxin B or placebo. So we'll see if the combination does even better for this population. Gosh, really looking forward to your results. I think it'll help us a, a great deal. Let me ask you a practical question. Um, with open biome kind of closing, if our listeners are interested in continuing to do FMT, where are the resources now to obtain stool for this? This is a very interesting time for those of us practicing in this space. So I would say some practical notes. Open Biome is not closed yet. So you can still order material from Open Biome. They are no longer manufacturing. They are only distributing. So all of the material comes from the University of Minnesota. Alex Karut's lab is producing everything and Open Biome is basically the distributing center for them. So you can still order. Um, it's basically on a one-to-one. -one, so you can't like bulk order and just kind of stockpile at your hospital. But if you have a patient that you need treatment for, you can order essentially one-to-one. -one. Um, and so they are in compliance with the new FDA regulations. The FDA just updated their policy of enforcement discretion back in December um, around IND requirements. Open Biome and the University of Minnesota are in compliance. So they are not shutting down just yet. I think they are winding down, although we don't know how long that wind down will be. I think the sort of newest thing that's happening in this space is we now have officially a FDA approved product and we'll likely have more in the near future. So I think this is really where this space is going, um, you know, for microbiome therapeutics is we're going to be prescribing things, these things, just like we prescribe anything else. You jumped the gun. That was my very next question, um, which is that this first fecal microbiota product, the Rebiota, um, was approved in November of 2022. Can you tell us generally about what the product is, how it's given, what its efficacy is, and then more specifically, is there any data in IBD? Um, this is a, you know, certainly exciting for us in this space to finally have an FDA approved product. This is, I think, going to be a bit of a learning curve for, for most people because this is a bit different than what we're used to in this space. This is a rectally administered product. So it's a whole cons broad consortium, whole consortium based product. Um, it essentially comes frozen. So it is meant for in hospital administration. So it's not something you send the patient home with. You essentially order it to your clinic or to your hospital. It comes frozen. It has to be thawed out overnight. And then you administer it at the bedside, in the hospital room, in your endoscopy center, or wherever you're going to plan to do this. Again, it is a rectal administration. So you have the patient basically get into the left lateral decubitus position and you essentially use gravity and instill this over about 15 minutes and then have the patient hang out for about 15 minutes. Then you can let them go home. Again, this is a whole stool product. This comes from, this is donor derived and it is the whole consortium. So very similar to a traditional FMT product. 
it is a liquid. So in theory, you could also administer this via a colonoscopy if you wanted to. And I do know, I think there's going to be some data presented on efficacy of using that route at DDW this year. Okay. Really interesting. Do Are the data, do they seem comparable to FMT overall? So I think, again, you um, have to compare this really to other, you know, enema or rectal administration data that we see in FMT. And I think we know that uh, enema-based administration, if you look in the FMT literature, does yield a slightly lower efficacy rate, and oftentimes you may need more than one. So I do think this is important if you're going to be using this in your clinic to discuss this with your patient. They might need more than one. Um, and this is something I haven't had any discussions with the company yet on, like, what's that process going to be like? How do you get more than one if the patient needs it? And I think these are things we will all figure out as we get hands on this product. But if you actually look at the phase three data, you know, that they published, they had a sustained clinical response rate of about 70.6%, you know, after eight weeks compared to about 57.5% in the placebo arm. So I would say pretty comparable to what we see in the standard FMT literature, especially with an enema-based product. Okay, great. And are there any data in IBD? Are we going to, are you, are you working on that? working on it. So anytime anyone wants to talk FMT and IBD, I'm there. So they have uh, open label studies um, that have gone on. And so there have been patients with IBD and C. diff who have received this therapy. We have done a little bit of digging into this data to look at changes in IBD medications, or if there was any six concerning safety signal, we did submit this as an abstract to DDW as well. So far, so good. I don't have enough data so far to tell you that efficacy is comparable, but I assume now that it's out, we will get a lot of real world data and that'll be published in short order, I'm sure. That is so great. Um, thank you so much. I always love learning from you and uh, I have not used Rebiota yet, but I'm looking forward to learning more. Ray and I always have fun with the end of the podcast asking you what we call our fun question. So we want to learn, and so do our listeners, I'm certain, something interesting about yourself that our audience may not know. Oh my goodness. I have a 19 month old son. And so I spend all my time with him uh, these days. I would say my fun fact used to be that if I wasn't a doctor, I'd be a makeup artist. I would say like, that is just not my life anymore. And now I'm in full <laughs> mom mode. Um, so now my life is spent, you know, going to children's museums and playgrounds, which um, I would say is a different change of pace, but a wonderful one. So that's uh, that's my, my only fact about me these days. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. I thought you were going to say you love Diet Coke, but I, I knew that about you. <laughs> that's just like, that's not a fun fact. That's just like a hard fact. Well, with that, we're going to end this episode of IBD Drive Time. Thanks so much to our guest, Dr. Jessica Allegretti, for teaching us so much about C. diff and IBD. And we look forward to regrouping with you later as we have more data on Rebiota. Thank you. Can't wait.